0: If you take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and we're just going to be looking at uh, verse 15 this evening. Well, we're going to be looking at a lot of verses, uh, but Mark 1.15 is going to sort of form uh, the basis of everything that we're going to be looking at this evening as we continue our look at the threefold offices of Christ as prophet, priest and king, and as we continue to look at the kingly office, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. In fact, we'll begin in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So, if we've ever wondered what is the gospel, here we have an opportunity to see what Christ says is the gospel. The gospel that he came preaching, saying... The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This evening we're going to look at and begin looking at, which will probably take us a couple weeks, to look at the king and his kingdom. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, as we have sung a, in prayer, Lord, that we would seek to know more about our Savior, Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we seek Your Spirit to be the one to work in our hearts and to reveal these things to us. As we, as we sung, Lord, we want to hear of His kingdom, uh, of the sure increase of that kingdom. And as Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Ruler of, priests, of Peace, Father, may that peace that passes all understanding be um, given to us as we understand who Christ is. So Lord, work in our midst as only you can. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we're talking about the king and his kingdom. And really what we find throughout Jesus' ministry on earth is that his core message is about this gospel of the kingdom. And Why he preaches, we're going to look at and see what the significance of this is. But he is displaying in his preaching his kingship by teaching about the kingdom of God. So I know you have a new handout today, but this is sort of an expansion on the last point of what we looked at last week, which was um, uh, looking at the authority or the, the kingship of Christ in his teaching. And we saw that, that he's taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. But in particular, this evening, I want us to take a deeper dive into the main focus of what Christ taught on, which was the kingdom of God. And again, what we saw here in Mark chapter 1, and particularly in other passages, is Christ came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, a quick note about the kingdom. Um, There are... Three terms used, in particularly in the Gospels, regarding the kingdom. There is just the term, the kingdom, which is referring to the kingdom. There is the term, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of God. Um, Now, some theologians would like to make big differentiations between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Um, and and sort of say that when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about one particular aspect of the kingdom, and when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about something else, that the kingdom of heaven is a little bit more particular, the kingdom of God is sort of broader. And we we could get really into the weeds of talking about and and really hair-splitting those different terms. I'm going to use kingdom, kingdom of God, and kingdom of heaven, and, and I view them as all referring to the same thing, that there is one kingdom that Christ has come to bring. Uh, I also think that this can be this can be helpful to us, um, particularly from a systematic theology standpoint. So, um, if if you've done any of the work that we had with our systematic theology class uh, uh, last year, or if uh, you've done any study in theology in general, um, there are there are two major systems of theology that oftentimes are pitted against each other. There's dispensationalism and covenant theology, and oftentimes their differences come down to how they view Israel and the church. Um, but I, I think the, the message of the kingdom and understanding the kingdom is, is a way to really bridge the gap between those two groups. And, uh, <clears throat> and again, we're not here to discuss those finer points, but I'm just sort of throwing that out there. Uh, I'm going to view any time that Jesus talks about the kingdom, whether it be the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's referring to one kingdom that he has come to bring. And um, again, this kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that he speaks of, is the gospel that Jesus comes to bring. So if you know, if we're to be gospel people, all right, we want to be gospel-centered people, and the gospel means what? Good news. If we want to proclaim the good news, and when Jesus came and he was preaching the gospel, the good news, and then he directly tied that to the message of the kingdom, Don't you think that that message then is important for us to understand today? The king and his kingdom. And so again, Christ began his ministry by preaching the gospel of God, which focused on the kingdom of God being at hand. We see this in Matthew 4, 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of what? The kingdom. And then he backed that up by healing every disease and every affliction, Of the people. In Luke, we see the same thing. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach. And here the ESV takes gospel and puts it into what it means the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus' core message is about the kingdom of God. And it included, as we saw in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and in Mark, two aspects. Repent, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what we saw here today, repent and believe in the gospel. And so the preaching included a command. 2. Repent. Repentance is the first word of gospel proclamation. It brings about a confrontation of sin. It is the very reason why what we looked at with Peter this morning, why there are scoffers. Because as we preach the gospel, we preach a gospel that begins with calling people to turn from their sins. Now, so often in churches today, and in, in, the, in evangelicalism throughout this country, throughout the world, there has been a failure to recognize this as one of the principal core points, in fact, the first point of gospel proclamation. Instead, people will very quickly run and say, the gospel is not repent, but what? Believe. Now, that's part of the gospel. Believe. But we cannot separate what Jesus' message is here, what the message is of the um, apostles is, that there was repentance that must come along with belief. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, we see this with John the Baptist. And it's interesting, John the Baptist was given to prepare the way for Christ. And in essence, he was come to prepare the way for Christ. Christ, who is the what? The king. So, how do you prepare the way for the king? And he sees these Pharisees and these Sadducees coming to him as he's doing this baptism. He's gotten popular. And so, these religious rulers are trying to sort of, you know, levitate or gravitate to what he's not levitate, gravitate to what uh, he's teaching and sort of get in on it and see if they can influence or, or gain influence from him. And so, John comes and he sees them. Now, this is his message, his message to these stubborn, religious, hypocritical people. And he does not begin with believe. He begins by calling them what? Vipers, a brood of vipers. He calls them to account and to understand their standing as sinners. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then this is what he calls them to do, first of all. Bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, we see that that it is said of John the Baptist that he was the one who Isaiah had prophesied, the one who would be the voice crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths. Straight, how do we prepare ourselves for the work of God? How do we prepare ourselves for the King's coming? And the answer requires a recognition of and a renunciation of the kingdom of darkness that we are enslaved to. We cannot just simply believe and be saved unless we understand what we are being saved from. There has to be a recognition of sin and a turning from it in order for the gospel to work in hearts. This is how we make a way, we prepare the way for the Lord. This is how we make His paths straight. And in fact, this was the message of the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 4, verses 3-4, through 4, he says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and so not among thorns. So he uses this agricultural um, illustration. Right, if you're going to plant seeds, um, I, I tried to do this once when, we, when I was a teenager and we lived in Mount Lebanon. I had, we had a little bit of an area to the side of our house, and uh, I said, I want to plant a garden. And so you know, I, I went and got a shovel and started digging in this ground, and it was all nasty, rocky, terrible ground. I should have gotten some good topsoil to put on top of it, but I didn't. I broke up the fallow ground, but then I just sort of threw the, the, the seeds in there. I did get some, get some growth. I got some green beans, and, and I think I tried a couple corn stalks. They didn't quite make it. Carrots. Um, I actually had one carrot. It was about this thick and about this long, and it sort of went like this. <laughs> And all the green beans the deer ate (laughs) off before they could even uh, come in. But if you're going to, so that's my experience as, as a farmer. Obviously, I do not have a green thumb. If you're going to plant something so that it would bring about fruit, you have to first break up the fallow ground, the hard ground, the rough ground. And then you have to clear out the thorns. You have to remove the impediments to the seed growing. And so this would be a familiar illustration to the people that Jeremiah was talking to because that was the major industry in Israel, agriculture. That's how people made a living. That's how people fed themselves. They would have immediately known that if you want fruit, you have to do this work of clearing the ground. And so he now likens that to what true repentance is. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart. What? Hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and if we don't do this, what happens? God's wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. We must, it is vital that we do this work of repentance. Hosea speaks of this, using the the same idea. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. So notice here we have the very essence of the gospel message that Jesus is preaching. And again, one of the offices that Christ fulfills, he is first prophet. And so his message as prophet is the same as the prophets of old. And why is that? Because he spoke through the prophets of old. It's the same author in both instances, both in what Hosea is saying and what Jesus is saying. And Hosea says, break up the fallow ground, repent, and then seek the Lord. And if we do this, he will come upon us and rain righteousness upon you. It's what John the Baptist, who was the last of the prophets, preached. He preached and baptized for repentance. He was preparing the way for Christ. He was breaking up or calling people to break up the fallow ground so that when the king came, they would be ready to receive him. And Jesus continued that message. He said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the first word of his gospel witness is, Repent. But that's not the only message. It is a command to repent and then secondly it is a command to believe. Again, this is what Mark points us to here in verse 15. Believe in what? Now that's, the, so, that's such an important point. Um, every year around Christmas time, Macy's has their big you know, thing that they do for for Christmas and they put up in big words on their stores, believe, right? I don't know if you've seen that. That's been sort of their their tagline over Christmas time. Believe. Um, Everyone believes in something, right? Everyone believes in something. So in one sense, we don't need to command people to just believe nebulously, to not have any content to their belief. Rather, he says, believe in the gospel, believe the good news. We'll find later that the message of belief is a message of dependence on Christ alone. Why is that good news? Because the message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, finds its expression in the fact that why it's good news is because the king has come. And that is what Jesus means when he says the kingdom is what? At hand. It's near. Why is the kingdom near? And why is that good news? Because the king has come. Notice what Jesus says in John 6. Jesus answered them. And this is after he has fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And crowds are following him. And so, notice it's important to note here that the good news of the gospel is not Jesus is going to fill your tummies. That is not the message of the gospel. In fact, he specifically points away from that. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give you why is it good news that the king has come because he is the only one who can give us food that gives us eternal life this is the message he gives to the woman at the well he tells the woman at the well I can give you water that you know not of. It will become, if you ask of me and you take of this water, it will become a wellspring of life bubbling up to what kind of life? Eternal life. And so Jesus comes and does the same thing. I give you the food that endures to eternal life. For on him, the Son of Man, who is Christ, God the Father has set his seal. And so they said to Him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you, what? Believe. Not just nebulously believe, not Macy's believe, that you believe in Him whom He, the Father, has sent. So they said to Him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Do you understand sort of the audacity of the statement? I mean, Jesus just took five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000 people. All right? Pretty miraculous. Well, we, we need another sign. And so he says, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says to them, I am The bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now Jesus will go on in this passage to shockingly call the crowds to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And many people can't receive this message and they turn away from him. And Jesus does this intentionally uh, to show these crowds, that they're, that to, to, to show them that they're not truly trusting in Him. They're still following Him for the physical um, blessings that He can bring. And we actually see in the context of what he's saying here that he is not actually literally referring to his literal body and his literal blood. He's referring to things that symbolize eternal truths. Just as he said he is the bread of heaven, so what does it mean then to believe in him, to depend on him, to consume him by faith as the only hope for eternal life? You know, we eat bread today. You go out and, and get some bread. Maybe put some bologna on it if you like bologna, or ham. Ham's a, ham's a good option. I can't believe I, start, I led with bologna. You put some ham on that on that piece of bread. Some nice Munster cheese or Munster. Is it Munster or Munster? Monster, monster, because I, I always had a problem with pronouncing that. I would say monster, Mon- like our monster cheese or whatever. So, anyways, I, I digress. You get that and 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 you eat it, and it sustains you. It it allows you to sustain your physical life. And Jesus is is saying, if you want to have sustained, eternal, spiritual life, you must partake and consume the bread of heaven. And He is the bread of heaven. He is the bread that brings spiritual life. So, why is the message of Christ a message of the gospel of the kingdom? Why does it bring good news? Because the King has come, and the King gives Good food to his people. So, notice again, too, this message is not a plea, but rather a command. Jesus does not beg people to come. He commands them to come. He proclaimed the gospel, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent! And believe Now, Jesus, we plead with men to obey the commands of our Lord. But Christ does not come and seek to establish that authority. And this is where his teaching oozes the authority that he has. Because who is he to tell people to repent and believe in him? I mean, if you think about this, if unless he truly is the Messiah, unless he truly is God in the flesh... If he's just another man, he has no right to tell people to turn from their sins and to turn to him. Unless it's actually true that he is the king and he is the king. So he sends this command, but then this command to repent and this command to believe, but then he gives a reason. And it's because the kingdom is near. Notice again what he says. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, so those provide the impetus, the foundation, the drive for repentance and belief. Jesus is tying the reason for repentance and belief to the fact that the kingdom has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, why is this a cause for repentance and belief. Why is this so important? Because it is the inauguration of the end times. And this is something I think that we we maybe get a little wrong to some degree. Um, When I say end times to you, you probably think what? Plagues, tribulation, Jesus comes back, like those type of things. But really, the end times are inaugurated when the king first came back. Look at what Hosea says. Again, in Hosea ten twelve, it says, "So for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Now, notice what else he says in verses 13 through 15. You have plowed... You've broken up the ground, but instead of plowing good seed, what have you plowed? Iniquity. And as a result, you've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and your fortress shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle." Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At the dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Now, this is not referring to Jesus as king, but he's actually referring to the the physical king there in Judah, in Jerusalem. Notice the judgment that comes with that. And when we think in times, we think what? Judgment. And Hosea is saying, seek the Lord so that he will come to you. Jesus is saying, guess what? The kingdom's here, and I'm the king. The end times are now. And John the Baptist warned his readers or warned his hearers about this aspect of Christ's ministry. John says in Matthew 3:11 through 12, I come or I baptize you with water for repentance. Right, Turn from your sins, and Jesus comes in the same line, turn from your sins and turn, to, turn and believe the gospel. Turn from what you're doing. Why? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John gives us a little bit more details because he says there's one who is coming after me who is mightier than I. So John understands his place. He understands he's just a servant of the king and he says that this king who's coming is someone who's not even worthy to he's not even worthy to carry his sandals what will this king do he will baptize you with two things there's there's two ways in which the king is going to work he will baptize you with the holy spirit or he will baptize you with what fire and then he goes back to this agricultural illustration. He's got a winnowing fork in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor. The threshing floor was where he would have wheat. And, and, of course, as they would harvest the wheat, they didn't have the sophisticated things we have today, so they would have to separate the wheat from the tares. And one of the ways they would do that is they would go in with this winnowing fork and they would throw up. the the wheat and the tares, and one would be blown away and the other would fall down so that they could separate those two things together. And as this happened on the threshing floor, what he would do is he'd take the wheat, the thing that was valuable, and he would gather it into a barn, into a safe place. But what did they do with the chaff? Burned it with, and then here is where we see the judgment of God, unquenchable fire. So we have to recognize that the preaching of the kingdom is a command to repent and to believe. And why? The king is here. He'll baptize you with either the Spirit or with fire. One, if you're baptized with the Spirit, you're given an entrance into his kingdom, and you are considered his child, you're considered his subject, and the Spirit is given to you so that he would convict you of sin and righteousness, of judgment. He's given to you to show you the way that you should walk as a kingdom of that citizen. The Spirit is immensely necessary so that we can live as pilgrims on this earth, or he will come and baptize you with fire. Now, the prophets in the Old Testament saw this as one event. We know in the New Testament that this is an, an event that happens in two stages. And currently we have the first stage that what we're looking at. The king comes. But Jesus will later on say that he has not come this time to judge, but to save. But there is a day where the king will come again. But this one event is The beginning of the end times. It is the inauguration of the kingdom. And in particular, in Revelation, you see this worked out as you see how God is bringing about the completion of His kingdom work as He eradicates the kingdoms that stand against Him and brings about on earth a final millennial reign that then wipes away at the end of that as mankind still rebels against Him He wipes away all of that at the Battle of Gog and Magog, and then we have the Great White Throne Judgment. And then there is the final kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, where God's people dwell in a perfect kingdom without the influence of sin at all. All of that started when the king came. And so the reason for repentance and belief is this is the end time. The kingdom is here because the king has come. And then this preaching becomes accompanied by proofs of Christ's kingship. It's interesting that the the crowds, after they had seen a miraculous proof of Christ's kingship and feeding the 5,000, still asked for a sign. And what's amazing is God or Christ continues to give signs. And his signs exist to show that he is. King, Matthew 4, 23 through 25. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so accompanying that message of the gospel of the kingdom, what else did he do? Healed diseases. Healed every affliction among the people. His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, And pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, we see that God, Christ, as he's casting out demons by the Spirit of God, that is an evidence that something has come upon them. What has come upon them? The kingdom. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. This is the core message that Christ brings to the gospel. And this is where we have to understand that Jesus never intended for us to view salvation as just a ticket out of heaven, it is a transfer of. From one kingdom that is doomed to destruction to another kingdom that is destined for eternal life. And that means that it brings about a radical change in your life. I don't don't know if anybody here has ever lived or moved from one country to another. Has anyone done that in here? All right. It, It is a radical thing to do, it requires a lot. It changes so much. I, I, I think of missionaries that go through this. We need to pray for our missionaries. Um, we, they, they put so much on the line for the gospel. They leave their family and their friends. They leave the comforts that we enjoy here in America. And they go to other nations and they do without. And they do this for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom. For them to do this, you know, one of the, most of the times when I'm looking at their prayer letters, I would say 45%, 30 to 45% of the missionaries' newsletters, you know what they're talking about? Visa application issues. Making sure that, they, that they're able to be accepted at the, at the embassy. They have to go to the U.S. Embassy so often. I mean, it's, it's a radical thing to move and to change your residence from this country to another. So why would it be any different if if we change our citizenship from this earth to heaven, it'd be a much more radical change. And that is what Jesus comes to bring. He says the kingdom is at hand. Believe this is good news, but it is life-changing news. Well, this is... The message that the prophets have given. This is the fulfillment of what the prophets had said for, for millennia that the kingdom would come. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, we see that the king is going to come and rule in righteousness and peace. We, we think about this oftentimes at Christmas time because it refers to the birth of Christ. But what is this child that's given to us? What is the son, or what is the child that's born? What is the son that's given? He is one who will carry a government upon his shoulder. He will rule, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. So he is not going to need counsel from any wise men. He possesses all wisdom. He is the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father, and he's the ruler, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I I just like to think about the irony of that statement. Government increases, and as a result of government increasing, peace increases. Now, how many of you would say that that's the experience that we have here in this world? We tend to think more government, less peace. And why is that? It's not necessarily that the problem is with the structure of government. The problem is with the men who are in government. Because they're not rulers who are ruling with righteousness and wisdom. They're ruling from their own sinful, blackened hearts. But when Christ comes, He will have a kingdom that will have a government that will never stop increasing. And as the kingdom and the government of Christ increases so will peace. You know, have you ever had a moment where you just feel absolute serenity? You just feel so peaceful. You know there, there are times where I've felt like that. I've been out on a kayak in the middle of a lake. It's calm and quiet. No one else is around. And it's just serene. It's peaceful. And Just think of the greatest experience of peace you've ever had. And that pales in comparison to the true peace that you're going to have one day when the kingdom of Christ is fully established. And then here's the thing, that amazing peace that you get, it continues to grow for all eternity. An unending sense of serenity. That's what the king brings That's the kind of peace He brings about. And as His kingdom and government increases, so will peace. He will sit on the throne of David and over His kingdom, He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. How our hearts yearn for true justice and righteousness in this world. Christ will bring it. And it will come... When he comes from that time forth and forevermore. And it is God's intense desire, his zeal, to accomplish this reality. So the king will come and rule in righteousness and peace. But as we saw this morning, as we're pilgrims in this world, we walk in a world that scoffs at us, that hates us. And we can find great hope in the fact that the king is going to come and defeat his enemies and rule over them. Psalm 110, verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is just an interesting expression that the psalmist gives for the level of power and rulership that christ will bring christ does not just simply defeat his enemies he will be surrounded by his enemies and he will be sovereign over them he will rule in the middle of them and so when we see a world that progressively grows deeper and deeper into sin progressively gets more and more opposed to the truth of christ we can find hope in the fact that the king will not be defeated We see that the prophets often speak of a king that will serve as a mediator between God and man. Psalm 110, verse 4. After he's already spoken of this kingly work of ruling in their midst, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the king, are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. How will Christ establish a people? He will establish a people by suffering for them. Isaiah 53, 11-12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This passage alone should explain to us why repentance is so necessary to the gospel message. You cannot believe without repentance. Why? What has Christ done? What has He done to save you from those sins that you want to persist in? He bled out His life. He poured out His soul for you. He died bearing your iniquities. This is why there are passages in Scripture in the New Testament where, particularly in Hebrews, where it talks about that if someone says that they've come to Christ and then they turn back to their sin, They turn back and and persist in it. They abandon repentance. That they are trampling under their feet the blood of Christ. So the message of the gospel has to begin with repentance because Christ has paid such a price to redeem us from our sins. And then we see finally that he is a king that will humbly enter his palatial city. Jesus does not come into Jerusalem as someone who needs the red carpet rolled out for him. He doesn't require fanfare. There's no announcement in the cities. All there is is not a red carpet, but a palm carpet. Zechariah speaks, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And this righteous and saving king comes humble and mounted on what? A donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, the gospel of the kingdom that Christ comes to preach is a gospel of good news because Jesus, the king, had come to reign. Because the king had come, the kingdom was now available. To all who turned from other kingdoms and came to the king. And all who did this would be granted access to the kingdom. This is exactly what is prophesied in Psalm 1 and 2. In fact, take your Bibles and turn with me quickly to Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 and 2, in, in many ways, are considered the gateway by which you enter into the Old Testament Psalter. They form, if you will, two great uh, supports to the archway of the Psalms. And they call people to turn from pursuing the kingdom of sin and to turn to Christ. Look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. All of those things, the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers, you have to turn away from those things. Repentance. And instead... Your delight is found not in the way of the world, but in the way of the Lord, in the law of the Lord. And this law is something that you're meditating on day and night. And if you do this, this is what it's like for someone in the kingdom. You're like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You know, this is something that um, has been re- illustrated recently. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've driven by on 50 here recently, they've been doing some work in clearing the brush and the trees that are by the streams. Why, why is that such a big problem? Well, these plants that are planted by st- this stream of water down here at Chartier's Creek or Creek or whatever, um, they soak up that nourishing water and they prosper greatly. Uh, and it's 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 funny to me because like they, they cleared out a bunch and I'm thankful for them doing that but they could only go up so far. And of course, we have right in front of our church sign trees that are prospering, all right? And and so I'm going to go out there and lay the axe to the root and chop them down one of these days here soon. But you can see that that the nutrients and the and the the satisfying water that the stream brings allows there for there to be just abundant vegetative growth, so much so that they've had to have a, um, a backhoe digging up all this stuff for the last couple weeks to clear it out, to control the vegetation on the creek bed. That's what it's like to be a Christian, to be in the kingdom of God. But those who refuse to repent, the wicked are not so. What are they are? They're like the chaff. That the wind drives away. And so those who continue in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of the scornful, they will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then we continue. Well, if this is true. Why do the heathens rage? Chapter 2, verse 1, Psalm 2, 1. And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They want to stay in the kingdom of this world. And so what is the God of all the universe doing in heaven as the plots of those in the kingdom of darkness come to fruition? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He'll speak to them in His fury and terrify them, or speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, as for me... I have set my what? King! On Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." So, what's the good news in that? And we see the same message. The king, the king is coming and he's giving a warning to other kings. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There we have repentance. No longer standing in the way of sinners, sitting in, the, uh, sitting in the seat of the scornful, but rather seeking to please the Lord in everything. And then we see faith in their turning and bowing and, uh, and giving allegiance to the king. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so the psalmist tells us that resistance to the King of Kings is futile, it's useless lay down your own supposed sovereignty and kiss the Son. And in doing so, you will find a refuge of blessedness in Him. Jesus fulfills this. Notice what He says to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Jesus comes to these righteous, truly holier-than-thou Pharisees and Sadducees who would never, ever imagine that they could be considered in any way, shape, or form unclean enough to be associated with prostitutes and tax collectors. And Jesus comes to them and says, because you won't repent of your foolish, hypocritical way of life, you are shutting the door of the kingdom in your own faces. And there are prostitutes and there are tax collectors that enter the kingdom before you. Why? And this is where we sometimes get this wrong. It's not because they persisted as prostitutes or they persisted as those who were um, exploiting people as tax collectors. What was it that made them different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Repentance and faith. They turned from their sins and believed the gospel. And so the message of Christ is the message of Psalm 2. Be warned. God will judge your sin, but you can turn from your sin and kiss the Son, and there you will find refuge and blessedness in Him. That King that God has set on His holy hill, Zion, is Jesus Christ. And His message that He brought, the core of his message was the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we, as those who seek to know you, seek to live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Father, work in our midst by your spirit. Take your word, apply it to our hearts and lives. May we walk out of this place determined to live in repentance and dependence on you. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.